good afternoon and good evening wherever and whenever you may be and welcome to episode 60 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Hannah Flint. I'm a modern woman. And I'm Clarice Lockery. This week we get our pinkies up for Downton Abbey, a new era as the popular franchise returns to screen for yet another victory lap. Um, we get <laughs> we get down to some Casablanca beats for Nabil Ayuch's musical drama, and thanks to a new Netflix documentary, we try to solve the mystery of Marilyn Monroe: colon, the unheard tapes. Plus, what is the bloody point of critics for this week's hot take? We dive into the biggest question of them all: an existential crisis for the three people on this <laughs> podcast. But hopefully uh, we're not feeling nihilistic this week. <laughs> How are you all doing, guys? Feeling good. Feeling good. Uh, I actually gave uh, a talk uh, to uh, the children of the future uh, earlier this week with Helen O'Hara. I went to school. Uh, Wait, to how talk. did you give a talk to children of the future? That means unborn fetuses? <laughs> It's <laughs> a maternity ward. <laughs> There's a load of pregnant women. You know what that was? <laughs> Ever since I've given that talk, I had uh, coming to America sexual chocolate in my head because I believe the children are future. That's the song that's been in my head. Okay. <laughs> so that is how I made that okay. sentence, which made no of sense. The future. Yes, I'm aware now. Thank very you very different. much. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll shut up. I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so yes uh, i've been thinking a lot about criticism and the best way to get into it uh and stuff like that uh, this week uh, and the talk went very very well uh, there's a couple of kids in the class who are very very passionate uh which was awesome to see so yeah maybe in a few years i'll kick us out of a job who knows um <laughs> but uh, but yeah that was fun to do i've also and we need to talk about it this week because this week's episode of moon Knight was very very good it was very very heartbreaking but it was very, very good. And Oscar Isaac, he's given one of the best performances in the MCU, I think. He's been very, very impressive in that episode in particular, which has three Oscar Isaacs in the same frame at certain points, was very, very impressive. I, I liked it a lot. I thought it was very good. I think that was like one of the most grounded things I've ever seen the MCU do, and especially like Oscar Isaac's performance. Um is, ah, get that man an Emmy. Get him an Emmy. <laughs> get yeah. him an Emmy. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because one of the things, my, I suppose my takeaway from it is, as we kind of said, like, everything's a bit light. Everything's a bit superficial. It kind of skins the surface of it. And then this had probably had more to do with, like, the Netflix. I would say the Netflix series, Marvel series, which actually gets to the crux of trauma and, like, presenting that. And, and we haven't had that really in one of the Disney Plus because again, you think about it, it's like, it's all family. Everything's like PG-13, it's kind of friendly. And this one's like, no, it's actually kind of very real and showing you exactly when people talk about childhood trauma, like this is how it happens. And I feel like that is a step in the right direction. I hope for the franchise, because I feel like it's all good having, you know, jokes and light and all this, you know, oh, Tony's got an alcoholic problem. And like, you think about like the Winter Soldier and all these things, it's like, oh no, let's take it seriously especially when we're doing a show about someone's disassociative identity disorder. Yeah. It's like, that's coming out. I will only say that we did have a similar exploration of trauma in a Disney Plus MCU series because WandaVision, in the penultimate episode, we do get a little bit of Wanda's early story and how uh, she became or started to become the person that we see today uh from that um yeah but i don't i mean i my the difference is there is that she was a victim of like a a bomb exploding in her flat which is obviously terrible trauma what i'm saying is like like having a mother like be abused like actual child abuse like that is like there's one i'm not saying that trying to diminish like wanda's trauma but there is like I think there's kind of a difference between child abuse and then randomly oh, yeah. getting a bomb in there. I think that's what I mean. It's like, it's not afraid to show like the real darkness of it. I mean, even maybe Black Widow a bit more as well. I mean, but again, this was like, take away like the Red Room and like throwing up. I think the reality of like how someone might get a discognitive, like a, get a mental health issue 
where did that come from? Mm-hmm. And why does someone have dissociative identity disorder? How does someone get those mental health issues? And this showed you like how actually take away superhero, whether you're going to get a child getting picked up to be an assassin or you get a stark industry bomb land in your living room. This is fundamentally a realistic portrayal that doesn't have any of the superness around it. This is, re- this is real. And it's what real people go through every single day and the way to protect themselves is sometimes developing these disorders and that's what I mean like it didn't have to suddenly have a dressing of superhero-ness to make it a worthwhile plot point yeah speaking of the superhero-ness of this show is this like compared to any other MCU outing in terms of actually seeing superhero stuff in terms of actually seeing Moon Knight being Moon Knight we've had maybe Five to ten minutes of that across five episodes. Like, there's no moonlight in this episode for obvious reasons, but I find that really, really interesting. And I, I don't, I, I, I like all the moonlight stuff, but I don't miss it. And I, you know, I think that's a testament to the show and the storytelling. I just think that's that's. I mean, what does Stan Lee say? He said the most important thing is the real person. It's mm. like you're the stories about Peter Parker. It's not about Spider Man. And I think that's what makes these stories work. It's about the real person underneath it. So yeah, sure, they do that as an alter ego. And I think that's why maybe it's different. It's funny, like with, you know, Superman, what's interesting is like he wants to be the the act. The act is Clark Kent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's actually Superman. And so I think it's always really interesting to kind of like how we have those split performances. And yeah, I think, especially when you've got a character like Moon Knight where um, there are different identities and like, you know, a fractured human being. I think it captures that he's got the fracturedness of him being like the superhero Moon Knight and being um, Mark Spector. But then it's also fractured in his own mind of being mm-hmm. Stephen. So it's just like, oh, it's like fractured squared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excited for the finale next week. Are we going to see Jake Lockley? This is interesting. See, I know things. I know things. <laughs> Clarice has been reading up on our comics. I'm a, impressed. He's, I'm impressed. He's got a mustache and he drives a cab. <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple of clues in this episode as to a third identity that we haven't fully seen yet. Um, they're, they're, they're very subtle, but they are in there. So it'll be interesting to see if we actually, in the final episode, get the full confirmed reveal, I have a third identity, this is who I am, I've been here all along, I'm the one who's actually been killing all these dudes, not Mark, when you've been going into your fugue state. I feel like a reveal like that might be coming, uh, which would be exciting. Mm. I, I want to say that my one thing I have an issue with about this one, but it's not a perfect series, but it's certainly better. It's like, I like the fact that um, Tarot is played by... Uh, a British Egyptian actress called Antonia Salib. Mm. But it does annoy me that she's got a very posh English accent when she's supposed to be an ancient Egyptian god. And it's the same with Konshu as well. It it does annoy me that we have to have like this westernization of these classic, like these ancient heroes. Like, could we not at least just give them like a more authentic, I don't mm. know, a- Egyptian accent? So it doesn't feel like I don't know, I just, I, I feel like it has these like ups and downs this series where it's like, it's good on this bit, but it kind of falls back in somewhere else. I know, because mm. I feel like we should be, like so often foreign accents are often used as like a, like, they're the bad guys. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. if they've got a foreign accent, they're the other. Um, and I feel like in this series where we're showing a bit more, I don't know, obviously better representation. It'd be nice if like, it's be, you know, people are supposed to be full on Egyptian, Egyptian heritage and all that type of stuff. Even though I know they're fictional. I know they're not real gods and stuff like that, but it's mm. like, Another way that we have to westernize everything. (laughs) Also, where's Anubis at? Why wasn't he there? I'm curious. He was, in a sense, because the person weighing the feather against the hearts, that was Anubis. Tarot, yeah. But that was a statue. Anubis is the actual... Yeah, I, was, no, I think it's yet. just like um like a, a, like a, yeah. a servant. But it's, it seems like she wasn't used to doing it, which makes me think Anubis has gone somewhere. I kind of feel like they played mm. it as if like she's just started a job. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> she's in her probation period. <laughs> exactly, that was the vibe I got, which made me think that something happened to yeah, my boy. Anubis. Just look at IMDb oh, and see what people uh, come up. Oh, like, so it's credited. Maybe. Yeah. Because I've seen this, this thing come up for someone else, a moot, like I've seen it, and they've cast that one. It's like, oh, yes, <laughs> I like it. Another another Mina actress out there. Oh. Anyway, right. <laughs> I think we've given Moon Knight a lot of time. Um, so 
Let's crack on. Ah, oh, yes. The show that won't stop showing. Here is Downton Abbey, A New Era. I've come into possession of a villa in the south of France. What villa? Start at the beginning. Years ago, before you were born, I met a man. They spend a few days together and he gives her a house. You never thought to turn it down? Do I look as if I'd turned down a villa in the south of France? When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go to Downton Abbey. It's the cinematic return of Julian Fellow's Upper Crust creation, which spanned 47 TV episodes, five Christmas specials, and reunited a massive cast of British actors as they journey to the south of France to uncover the mystery of the Dowager Countess's newly inherited villa. Oh, was she getting some back in the day? Um, directed by franchise newcomer Simon Curtis. It stars, of course, Hugh Bonneville, Elizabeth McGovern, Maggie Smith, Michelle Dockery, Laura Carmichael, Jim Carter, Phyllis Logan, and many others. So I haven't seen this film because uh, I've got a lot of work on, and honestly, I just don't care. (laughs) (laughs) I really just don't care enough to see it. So I will leave it up to my professional peers to fill in the gaps. So, I suppose um, I wonder. I suppose one question I have the most is like, how as this is a kind of very much a show of upstairs downstairs, how much of the downstairs are actually in the south of France? Oh, there's like the butler goes. Yeah. That's it. Well, it's a very. I think some of the advertising for this film is quite misleading because it makes you think that the majority of the film is set there. It's not. There's like two main plot lines. And like around six or seven people go to the south of France and everyone else stays at Downton where Hugh Dancy is a silent film director who turns up wanting to use the house as a location. So you're not you're not really we're not really in the south of France for very long. Okay. That's just like a house. You're like, that's a very nice okay. south of France. It is a house. very nice house. Very nice. <laughs> I suppose then, I mean, are you guys fans of Downton Abbey? No. Like, okay. It, well, like, yeah, I, I haven't, I haven't watched uh, the series. Like, I've watched the first film, I had an okay time with it, but full disclosure, before watching the second film, I was like, are they going to do like a recap of what happened in the first film, like a two minute, like, you know, for, like last season on Downton Abbey or something to get me caught up because I could not remember a single thing about it. And I had to sort of go to Wikipedia to just like read a quick summary of what happened before actually watching the film. Is it that they're still posh and rich? <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, yes. Yeah, okay. I mean, I suppose for us, I don't think anyone here is a Downton Abbey fan. Um, but, and uh, it seems like this is just a cash cow where it's like, let's let's milk it into cinematic form because they won't do a TV show anymore. They run out of, they want to invest in that one. So like, you know, bring, uh, dilute it, make it smaller into a, a TV uh, into a film rather than it just being an overlong episode. What are the merits of? Tell me what you think are if there are any merits of this movie being made. Gorgeous gowns, gorgeous, gorgeous <laughs> gowns. Uh, a high clear castle. I used to live really close to it. I'd see it every single day on the way to school. Never actually went inside though. <laughs> um, nice location, production design, costumes, and I guess if you like Downton Abbey. It's more of the thing that you like. But I think that's where my recommendation ends. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I more or less agree. I think I had a better time with it than Clarice did. Um, Because, like, even though I couldn't remember half the character names, I was still charmed by quite a bit of it. Um, I think the acting is really, you know, solid to good across the board. Uh, Maggie Smith for me has a lifetime pass because of Sister Act and Sister Act 2 uh, which I watched a lot back in the day and I still love those films um, so and she's really really good in this you know she's one of the she's probably the biggest fan favourite character of the entire bunch um, and she you know gets to deliver some venomous lies in the, in the, in the way that only she can deliver them and I enjoyed you know those moments and uh, the coda of this film, obviously I'm not going to go into spoilers, but especially if you're a fan of the show, 
I think they will hit the right emotional notes to really send this series off on a high note. I do think that this it this feels like the end of an era. This feels like the end of Downton for good. I know, you know Hannah, you said it's a cash cow, and to a certain extent that is correct because I think they said the same thing about the first film a few years ago. But this film really does feel the way they ended. It feels like the end of something special if you're a Downton fan. You say that now, Lamont. <laughs> we'll be two here months in later. Two years. <laughs> Downton Abbey three. A new new era has been announced. No. A newer um, era. New, <laughs> too new, too era. Well, this is the interesting thing because the movie is set in. It seems like late 1928 early 1929 and do we remember what happened in 1929 yeah. what happened? uh so Especially uh the, like, well, the great depression no the, depression. Depression. War was 1914 to 1918 yeah no it was the the war no, Street. When, when, it was the great depression started which obviously which obviously was more the u.s based but it had a massive ripple effects and it did in the uk so i think it's it's interesting that they ended it i there. thought you were gonna say it was like this is the start of world war ii <laughs> where like hitler's coming about like we're getting in the no. motions getting into the motions no, of it like was like that? Another... world war ii was 1939, 1939 yeah. yeah so they've got another 10 years before that they but... had a 10 year grace period until nazis <laughs> <laughs> But for a show about the aristocracy, I don't know what they do when the. <laughs> the oh, I think happens. life finds a way to give the to like humanize the aristocracy, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Um, maybe maybe the next one will be like the downstairs rebellion, <laughs> and it's a horror film. I'd watch that Downton Abbey. Okay, uh, shall we? Those... Your verdicts. Anything else? Any other redeeming thing you thought? Oh, not a redeeming thing. Yeah. I'd, like to make a, I'd like to lodge a complaint. Go on then. Um, so they've got the, this character. I'm so sorry, I've forgotten his name. He's the guy in the first season who's who works in the downstairs bit, who's accused of stealing spoons, but he didn't steal the spoons. That's all I remember. <laughs> but over the course of the show, uh, like he came out as gay. Oh yeah, that and, one I know who you mean. Yeah, and so in this movie, they introduced Dominic West as one of the actors, the silent film actors, as like a potential love interest. And they spend the whole movie just like... <laughs> Dominic West is there like biting his lips so aggressively that I was worried they were going to start bleeding halfway through. But then they never kiss. Yeah. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler, but they never kiss. And I was so mad. <laughs> because, oh, yeah, that's annoying. Because in any other... If it was not two guys they would have kissed on screen yeah. and it's just it's like i hate that they're doing the absolute bare minimum to be like oh we've got representation like they're not allowed to touch each other i don't think they touch at any point they're always on the two that... opposite sides of the screen like... what in the in the tv series did they have an actual gay kiss because obviously his whole story coming out did they show him kissing i don't know i didn't i i haven't seen that i've yeah. seen like a little bit of the show it's a sad state of affairs because it's like everywhere you go, whether it's Russia, China, the Middle East, certain Arab worlds like Egypt, like any hint of these studios trying to cater again because it's a cash cow because they want to get as many people, they want to get them in, they would rather like cut things out and design it, designs, design um, scripts in a way that, that actually they can easily cut out and it won't affect the story so that it can be shown in these other worlds. And it's like, that for me, it's like, if you don't want to have these films shown in other countries where they don't allow it, you should not be wanting to have your film shown there. Because it's just, it's like, you should have some integrity of the art, of what you're creating. But also, this is not a film that has a much of a global audience. It's popular in the UK and it's popular in the no, US. No, but people I like, yeah. Think. But but, but it, like places in China, they do really love English period. I've never seen this, I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was like Tomorrow's World. I used to watch that show all the time. And they had like this thing where they went to China and there's this like place that had been re it re replicated like an English, English cul-de-sac town because people are so obsessed with like English culture. Like mm. if you go to like, if you go there, like the Queen and the royalty, like a lot of places in China and like East Asia, they're obsessed with the Queen and the royal family. I would not have put, I would not have called that. Uh, <laughs> I've I've one good thing and one bad thing to say about Downton Abbey: colon a new era. Um, I do like 
what it was doing in terms of showing how the filmmaking world was moving from the silent era to the talkies era. And they do a lot of interesting stuff with that that I enjoyed. But there's one character who's one of the actors. Uh, I, think she, I think she's played by Laura Haddock. And uh, she is being very rude to the staff. And at one point, because of uh, some plot machinations that mean that she is only allowed to be on screen but not actually uh, talk, somebody else is talking for her, she gets really upset and she sort of goes to a room to hide. And they try and make a connection between this rich actress whose mere face puts millions of people in seats, we're, we're told, and the downstairs people because they are both the same, they are common each other, which just, for me, it didn't quite work what they were trying to do there with connecting those two things. So, yeah. Well, also I would say, I don't know if that plot seemed familiar to you, but there's a little movie called Singing in the Rain, which did I've heard of exactly it. <laughs> the same story, <laughs> where it's basically the transition from silent to sound and the actress, you know, doesn't have the RP accent, so she's panicking because she doesn't think she can uh, do the transition, so somebody else What do you in. mean I can't be in the talkies? <laughs> <laughs> do I yeah. not sound good? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and like, I wonder who in the Downton Abbey household could possibly step in. You'll guess you'll have to watch the movie to find out. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're selling Hannah on it, Clarice. Uh, uh, well, on that bombshell. <laughs> okay, screen, uh, screen, stream, or skip. I'm on stream. I had a decent time with this, and I think if you're a Downton Abbey fan, you'll really enjoy it. Uh, Clarice? Skip, because they also make a lot of jokes about the French, and it wasn't funny after the fifth or sixth time. (laughs) It's like, it's enough. We can stop now. (laughs) C'est merde. C'est merde. C'est merde. I wanted more resolution from that storyline that they do as well. It felt like there was more there to say, and then they just forget about two characters in front. Hold on a second, hold on a second. What? You've just said, this is a really nice ending. I think it's the perfect ending to show the end of it. And now you're saying, actually, it needs to do more of these (laughs) other characters. Make up your goddamn Minamon. (laughs) It was just one additional point. Okay, well, we've already... No additional points after we've given our verdict. That's the new rule that I've implemented because we're not talking about Downton Abbey anymore. Okay, maybe okay, just about Downton Abbey. Once you give your verdict, that is done. We're Romeo done. <laughs> Romeo done. Okay, getting into the uh, <laughs> nice little kind of getting into the urban vibes of our next film. <laughs> bra, bra. Oh, it's uh, Casablanca Beats. إلا نرجعوا لغيزون برانسيبال علاش بدا الهيب هوب على ود الميز العنصري على ود الفقر على ود المعاناه اللي كانوا كيعيشوا سكولاريس from the weight of traditions and express themselves through hip-hop culture. This is directed and co-written by Nabil Ayuch. It's set in the Moroccan art centre that Ayuch himself set up and features non-professionals playing versions of themselves, including Ishmael Adwab, Nuhala Arif, Samar Baragou, Abdelila Basbousi, and Anas Basbousi. So one of the films I'm seeing this film compared to is School of Rock. Hannah, are those comparisons valid? <laughs> um, I feel like that's a very weird comparison. School of Rock is not like a private school <laughs> for rich kids to learn how to like who are already playing instruments. I I feel like there's no. I think this has probably more in common than like with something like I don't know. Dangerous Minds or Dead Poet Society. Do you know what I mean? It's, I mean, I know Dead Poets is posh school, but it's like, I think it's easy to compare like a Sky coming in and music, but I think that's a very like, I think this is his own film, if anything. I feel like when people are making that comparison, it's more to do with the energy of the kids and how they find themselves and find the 
find a voice for themselves through music. And in that regard, I do think the comparison is valid. I guess, I, I mean, look, I feel like there's this knee-jerk reaction in film criticism to always compare it to something else. And I just don't feel like, sure, there are two music, movies about that, but I think this is far more talking about Moroccan culture, Islamic culture, and that, how that affects the people within it, people who are living in a society where they're in abject poverty and they can't eat and, like, trying to find their voice in that place and this kind of cultural, like, double consciousness, especially for the women. You know, these the girls who are rapping, like... There's a really, really strong bit in it where she kind of like says like how who she is inside is not the same person who is outside, and that is a very real situation. Clarice, what did you make uh, of the kids and energy, and what they're actually rapping about? Because uh, I really like the political angle uh, that is voiced through the lyrics. Yeah, I this is such a kind of cool. F- fascinating movie for me because it really borders that line between fiction and documentary because these kids are basically playing themselves and I don't I don't actually know how much of it was improvised or, or scripted but it feels like it could have been majority improvised especially in the discussions they have and there's such a wide range of, of topics because that schoolroom becomes like it becomes the safe space for them where they can talk about uh, misogyny and politics and, and religious extremism. And the really powerful thing for me was the comparison of how alive and these kids are in the classroom. And you get so many opinions and you get such a good discussion going. And then they go home and you just see them like shut down because they don't feel comfortable talking to their parents about how they really feel. They don't feel like they can express themselves. There's one where the girl, like, she just goes straight to bed and she puts on her headphones and she starts listening to music because that's all she can do. And I think that combination makes for a very powerful argument for the, like, the power of rap, because it is a platform for people who do not have a voice in any other space. Uh, so I, I loved it for that for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And I really like the way in which those conversations, especially in the classroom, are captured. The camera work is so kinetic and it really puts you in the room with them to make those scenes even more impactful. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, so it's, it seems like it's got like a very much a cinema verity kind of vibe. Like you're in there, in the mix of it. You feel like you're imposing. You're actually kind of like a fly on the wall, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I suppose, you know, it's interesting because I just... I read this um, read this book called Sex and Lives um, by Leila Slamani, who is a Moroccan writer. She also wrote like Lullaby, and she wrote a few films. Like she's a French Moroccan uh, author and writer, and it was all these kind of anecdotes and experience from women in Moroccan society and how there's like one rule, like how much religion and and and, and morality and like sexism and gender roles plays havoc on how women are supposed to navigate the world if you're you know if you're gay or anything like that and it it watching this film felt like an extension of that of getting an understanding of like Moroccan culture that is outside of the kind of stereotypes that you see like this shows you what it means to be in the societies that are western societies and what's so interesting when you look at what they're wearing you know they're watching wearing like a boy boy london cap and they wear you know have the designer logos and it's so interesting because it's like that for them that they've got these like this idea of what cool is, like a champion T-shirt, Louis Vuitton, but obviously probably fake because, again, these kids come from nothing. And I think it's so interesting to see, like, how the influence is manifested, but how they're able to kind of, like, I don't know, trying to find that positivity, trying, as a, it's called positive school, it's like trying to find some, like, happiness in life where it's not, you know, not everyone who's Muslim has a very fanatical idea about it. And I love that they had those discussions. They're having these conversations that are so often missing um, in Western films or people doing West coming in. And I love the fact that it didn't try to make this teacher a saviour. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the guy comes in, he's, he's changing everyone's lives. You don't even get much backstory in him. And I love that, because it's all about the kids. It's like, he's going to be like a kind of, I don't know, he can be like a lightning rod to try and inspire them. But it never really felt like it was overly trying to be about him, him sacrificing and all that. You kind of, it implies what he's had a previous life. And you get there, but it's not about that. It's about them. And I think that is so brilliant. And that's very different from the School of Rocks and Dead Poets and all that type of stuff. It's not trying to make a martyr out of him. It's not trying to make him like, oh, the big hero. 
it's like no this is the most realistic thing that you can see and I think that's actually considering uh, Nabil obviously based on his own life him is in the character of Anas I feel like that's so that's actually quite I quite like that he didn't try to build itself up if that's the character that he's supposed to be in real life he's kind of like he's kind of a dick at the beginning yeah because i remember coming in and he's like telling these kids what the fuck are you rapping about like what <laughs> yeah. are you saying and he makes one kid cry and i was like oh my god is this gonna be like a whiplash situation i'm scared yeah. but i think what's clever is that then throughout the course of the movie you see why he acted that way at the beginning because he understands like the vitality of what they're doing so you sort of like retroactively go Oh, okay. He wasn't just coming in to yell at kids. I well, yeah, I like it because he's like, <laughs> rap isn't there to do your beefs, like to do your individual beefs. Just go talk to someone. Rap is a platform to talk about your life, the world, like politics, everything that's going on. That is like a, it can be a manifesto for the change that you want to see in the world. And actually, if you, and he respects it and treats it seriously, it's changed life. And the fact that he references on like African-American culture at the very beginning Shows that that's how he sees it. He takes it seriously. Um, I don't know if you've seen this movie called Papicha, but it was interesting. They have it's got um, Lena Kudri who was in French Dispatch, but that's Algerian and that's set during the nineties. Um, and it's interesting enough they want to put on a fashion show, but that's haram. Um, well, in in that in in the, in the culture and that, especially at a time it was fraught and like actually a lot of the Islamic militants were kind of setting the pace for what was going on. This kind of has similarly have that they have this big concert and you've got the people in the community who are trying to like take it down. It's like, isn't it just so like wild that that's like the reality for so many people just putting on a concert or dancing? And I love that they incorporate the dance in it as well, like her doing the performative dance of one of the characters. Yeah, can you tell us it's very much my cup of tea? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Um, yeah, no, I I agree. I I do like the fact that you know. There is a concert of sorts in this film, but in other films, that would be to the big climax. And as you said, that would put the emphasis on the teacher. Given how everything plays out in the final few minutes of this film, the emphasis, as you mentioned, is fully on the kids. And I really like what they did with that. I I like the fact that um, considering Casablanca is the most famous movie with that title, and yet it is nothing at all to do with the actual people of Casablanca <laughs> and it has a very uncomfortable scene where it's like the French stand up and sing the sing an anthem to try and against the oppression it's like you French colonized Morocco fuck off <laughs> you don't get to be like the you know I get it against Nazism but like the cognitive dissonance of this film to basically say we're French standing up to the Nazis in a country that they basically took over uh, uh yeah I hate that that's the most famous like film with Casablanca in the title so Shout out Casablanca Beats for reclaiming their home. <laughs> and now it is time for our screen stream or skip recommendations on Casablanca Beats. <laughs> I would I would say screen. The one tiny thing I would say, um, if you're going into it, I think it's helpful to contextualize it in your head as a documentary and keep that in mind because the structure of it is more documentary style than perhaps traditional fiction. So that's all I'd say it's kind of like like Capernaum isn't it like that sort of kind of Dardem brother sort of thing mm. I think um, I'm screen and that is all I have to say it is screen from me also from one documentary-esque film to an actual documentary it's the mystery of mm. Marilyn Monroe colon the unheard tapes in 1982, Los Angeles reopened the case of Marilyn Monroe's death. After 20 years, it's time to clear up this case once and for all. I couldn't the interviews have never been heard until now. Well, I hope your phone is clean. Everything connected with the person's life, particularly hers, you know. Stranger things or narcos, there's too many shows. The algorithm is a girl's best friend. Gentlemen prefer Clarice. <laughs> no, they don't. They really don't. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a new Netflix documentary 
called, full title, The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe, The Unheard Tapes, which I noticed was right next to, there's another documentary out this week that's like, serial killer, the John Wayne Gacy tapes. Don't get them confused. They're very different documentaries. Uh, Hollywood icon Marilyn Monroe's tragic death spawned conspiracies and rumors for decades, often overshadowing her talent and shrewdness. By piecing together her final weeks, days and hours through previously unheard recordings of those who knew her best, the film illuminates more of her glamorous, complicated life and offers a new perspective on that fateful night. Directed by Emma Cooper, it features recordings collected by journalist Anthony Summers for his 1985 book, Goddess. Uh, I find it very interesting. So that I had just read out the official synopsis for this documentary, and I find it very interesting that the synopsis said that her death and all the conspiracy theories often overshadow her talent and shrewdness. Uh, <laughs> That's exactly what this documentary does. Yes, yeah, Simon, would you? Yeah, would you say that maybe this documentary is kind of guilty of it too? Yes, <laughs> a million percent. Yes, like I, for my sins, don't know much about Marilyn Monroe. This was not a good film to help enlighten me on Marilyn Monroe. Um, it just does so much conspiracy theories, and even the way that they were dispensing with that information. They had actors lip sync to the videotapes on multiple times. And I'm like, what is this adding to the film? What is this adding to your story? Uh, for me, it wasn't much, if anything, at all. And yeah, I, in terms of like the deep revelations that you come to for um, documentary and an exploration into who this woman was, I felt like I barely got any of that and what i did get was very surface level um so yeah as exactly as you say the synopsis this is exactly what the film's doing in terms of overshadowing who marilyn monroe actually was with all this other stuff which i didn't really like yeah hannah do you want to jump in because i feel like you have a response to this as well i mean <laughs> i feel like netflix is going to get a wrong impression for me because <laughs> I fell asleep watching this so many times and had to restart, woke up. I was like, oh shit, it's the end of the movie. Uh, so, so I did like about four times. As well, so. uh, I understand the use of uh, actors because it just makes it more engaging to watch. than like, Clearly just not for you. <laughs> yeah, no, but I can understand why they're trying to do, why they're trying mm. to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like there's a million things I care about Marilyn Monroe and I don't think this has really answered that many questions that it set out, said they were setting out to do. Yeah, I found it, I was very, I was made very uncomfortable by this documentary because they introduce a bunch of conspiracy theories that I, like, I haven't heard of before. They suggest, they bring, there's a thing about Jimmy Hoffa, you know, the, the trucker union head uh, from the Irishman, played by Al Pacino. Uh, <laughs> um, about also, didn't like Jack Nicholson play Jimmy Hoffa in the night in an old in an old film? I feel like he's oh. had been played a few times. Yeah, oh, sorry, that's a, a separate few times. thing that I just reminded me of. Same just thing. thinking of Al Pacino going solidarity. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so they, yeah, they they have a whole thing about Jimmy Hoffa and his rivalry, I guess, with Robert Kennedy, like trying to imply that Jimmy Hoffa killed Marilyn Monroe. And then there's a whole other bit about how she had contact with Cuban communists. And it's like they set up all this stuff, even though they know that it's false, because it is patently untrue <laughs> and the documentary then has to reach a conclusion of going yeah actually there's no there's not really a conspiracy about it it's kind of pretty fucking obvious how she died if you knew anything about her life so i i don't know i'm just very like infuriated by that i've always thought that a lot of this obsession with the mystery around her death to me screams like misogyny because I feel like people cannot in their mind conceptualize of a woman being beautiful, smart, like and massively depressed. Like yeah. people just don't they don't want to put that in their brain because oh that would be such a waste of her beauty and blah, blah, blah. and I just find it I don't think there's any mystery to her. Does it it's like when Robin Williams like killed himself? People are like, oh, this is not the person that can't, like, there had to be, like, and again, I mean, I get there was, ended up turning out to be, like, an actual, I think they said, they've said it was a 
there was a part uh, it was a, a condition form of dementia yeah the, but like the, the immediate reaction is very sad yeah but like this one was like just because she's constantly playing a pin-up and she wasn't she's seen as this absolute gorgeous cousin but who could think there could be anything wrong in her life and it's like when you look back at it it's like no she was abused as a child she was abused while she was trying to start out in the industry um and then throughout her life you know she's had men basically you know what's that favorite fav- um famous thing that Rita Hayworth says, he says, oh, they want, what's the character that she plays? So whenever they meet me, they're disappointed because I'm not that person on screen. And it's things, mm-hmm. I think there was a character she played as like, they go, they, you know, they go on a date with me, but they get so-and-so and it's disappointing and get Rita and it's disappointing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's often the case with, and I feel like Marilyn Monroe, it's like, like, again, the story felt like it didn't really offer anything much. It felt quite, loose <laughs> it was like let's find loose threads to try and create a narrative around and people giving themselves i suppose um uh making them seem far more important than they are to her story like the 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 the, the, the investigative journalist was the guy who's with the tapes and stuff so like oh god i just don't really this is yeah. the thing. I don't care about <laughs> any of this stuff. You're some random guy and suddenly you're supposed to be the, oh, you're doing the, you're doing, you're getting truth in truth to power. Seems to be, in a way, you're trying to, you know, create, create your own sense of importance within this wider context. It also reminded me of this, like, you know, the trashy, like, you know, Daily Mail tabloidy stuff that we get on a day-to-day basis. I don't care about this stuff. All this stuff with the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, literally, I could not care less. I cannot wait for that thing to be over. And the thing is, we're talking about Marilyn Monroe here. Again, I don't know much about her, but I know Marilyn Monroe, one of the most famous actresses of you know, the last you know, however many years. There's so many more, surely so many more interesting angles you can go into when you're talking about a documentary, any type of story about Marilyn Monroe that are better than what we get here. And I'm hopeful that the Anna de Armas biopic that we've got coming in a few months... <laughs> Uh, it's not it's gonna go focus the guy who did it if you've read the interviews the guy because the guy is known for he did like kill him softly didn't he this guy he's i think they're saying it's gonna be like a dark kind of biopic it's not gonna skirt around like the trauma and i feel like Uh, oh i've yeah I've, i've read the book i really like the book but it's it's treading a really fine line because it is about it's very much about her trauma i think it it develops the her psyche enough that she feels like a full person but it would be so easy to fuck that up so i am worried i'm very worried but someone just make like a fun movie about marilyn having fun with jane russell that's what i mean it's like you know my week with marilyn i will say at least that was kind of a bit more upbeat of course she was going through stuff with arthur miller at the time and you know but that felt like oh she, her life, she's actually kind of a vivacious human being, and but she's complicated and she's vulnerable. There are all these things are going and it kind of, I like the way that kind of narrowed it down a bit more, where, you know, it's not about her dying at the end of this week. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 it, if you're going to listen, if you want something about Marilyn Monroe, I kind of recommend watching, listening to the um, You Must Remember This episode on the yes. podcast. The podcast, it's actually very good and I found like I it's far took far more care with her legacy and getting to know who she is rather than this one which seemed to be less about Marilyn and more about the guy who wrote the book goddess yeah just that podcast in general yeah. uh so let's i feel like i know where we're gonna answer but are we streaming or skipping this on? we are skipping this hannah skippity doo da skippity a <laughs> i would also say skip and I will give a recommendation. Uh, Let's make love from oh god, I've forgotten the day. It's like the early sixties. Uh, that's a kind of underseen Marilyn movie that I really love. It's about being sexy and having this French people in it, and it's great. I like gentlemen prefer blondes. I love gentlemen prefer blondes. Oh my god, I went through a period where I just watched like gentlemen prefer blondes and Let's Make Love on loop. Oh, I haven't <laughs> no. seen Let's Make Love. I'll have I to watch that. Amon, do you have any Marilyn Monroe movie recommendations? No, as I've stated twice, I don't know much about Marilyn Monroe. So I'm taking in all the recommendations. This podcast, I'm going to hit it up. You you give me stuff. Have you seen Some Like It Hot? (gasps) 
You haven't seen Paddington 2. I think we're okay. I think we're even there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> actually, okay. if you remember and listen to what I actually say, I watched the first 10 minutes of oh, it good and I did you. not like it. 10 minutes. <laughs> well, nobody's perfect. That's a quote from Some Like a Heart. Which you wouldn't understand because you haven't seen it. Yeah, I do not understand that reference. <laughs> okay, it's about that time for our... I've forgotten what it was and I was scared to continue. We need you we're waiting for you to come up with your own um jingle your own jingle, another layer to it. We need another layer. We've got so many layers to this. Very unmusical, so (laughs) keep joking, you're very waiting. You're gonna be waiting long. Your your Marilyn Monroe intro was a whole song. It was beautiful. Yeah, but I, I did not write the song. <laughs> I wish I had. It's a great song. Maybe we should just we should start like a like a Bo Burnham or what's it called? Like do parody songs. That could be our new flex of just doing taking famous songs and doing like critic versions of it. Because have you seen that those 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 like I want to say Jesus freaks, but I feel like they kind of oh well take like a. So I'll take like a popular song. Did you see that video? It was going viral of like, and I apologies, it's not Jesus. There's there's a good, there are some non-Jesus freaks out there, but there are some who just like take it too far and like have taken the lyrics to like a, what is it? What's the, what's the song? What's the guy? What's the guy with the glasses? He's not black, but he sings black. What? She's Uptown Funk. Who sang Uptown Funk? Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so someone taking the lyrics to Bruno Mars or some some song and they're like, let's make it about Jesus. <laughs> like, you know, like those songs are like changing all the lyrics. So it's like, it's like, Uptown Jesus, don't fuck with me. Like what? that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, what? I swear to God, there was a thing and they basically take like lyrics or like songs that are pop songs and then they turn them into Jesus songs. There is a, a white woman who did like a white woman version of um, uh, Childish Gambino's America, and it was the worst thing I've ever oh, seen. Oh no! Yeah. Also, can I point out life. that most of these people are white? <laughs> oh yeah. That oh, yeah, that Childish Gambino sense. one I did see, and I concur with Clarissa. It is one of the worst things you will ever subject yourselves to. They're giving Christians a bad name. We gotta push her into the sea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think there are some Christians who are like, we'd like to be excluded from that narrative. <laughs> Me included. <laughs> okay. Anyway, speaking of narratives that people won't be excluded from, Viola Davis accidentally kicked off about a bit of discourse when, in an interview on BBC's Today program, she mentioned that critics absolutely serve no post purpose. In response to the not so warm re- reception to her performance as Michelle Obama in The First Lady, I feel like just to give it more context, I think a lot of the, I, I suppose, the way she spoke about it, the wider thing about it, she kind of was talking about like what she's doing as an actor. It doesn't like affect like it. I think she was trying to say as an actor it doesn't serve her purpose. But I think the the bite that's been taken, the sound bite that's been taken, and that people are up in their feelings about is critics don't serve a purpose. Now, whether she was talking about traditional critics like us or armchair critics on Twitter who are sharing hilarious memes, because <laughs> they are quite funny. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, what do we think? Twitter obviously never lets the truth get in the way of a good hot take, so let's dive in. Um, let's just, I suppose in general, do you think Viola, let's just get that out of the way. Do you think Viola was talking about professional or armchair critics? I'm on. I would like to hope that she was talking about armchair critics more than professional critics. Um, you know, social media being what it is, everyone can now have an opinion. And I feel like for actors, especially to sort of focus on that, nothing good will come of that. So I'm hoping that when Viola Davis was saying what she was saying, that that is who she was referring to. Because I do think professional critics do have a purpose uh, in today's world, not only to enlighten uh, about why a film works, about why it's emotional, about why we may be acting a certain way to art, but also to um, enlighten in the respect of... uh, in the respect of here are the films that 
you should be keeping an eye on. Not just the big blockbusters like your big Marvel films, but independent films like a Casablanca Beats, which people may not hear of if critics don't speak up about them. So, yeah, I would like to think that Violence was talking more about the armchair, Twitter hot take people rather than the professional people because of those reasons. Clarice, because the thing is, there's there's an interesting thing about, are we, I mean, should people read their reviews? Um, no. <laughs> okay. That's been like my blanket rule. I remember I had a very old editor who, do you remember that movie where Elijah Wood was a piano player and it was like a thriller and the guy was like you got to keep playing the piano or i'm gonna shoot you do you yeah. remember that movie i think it may have been called grand piano yeah it was called grand piano but i wrote a review of that's this. a very new take on like a speed it was basically what's it the love line it's speed but with a piano that's the elevator pitch the piano. Yeah. i really enjoyed that movie i've got to say well, I gave it like three stars and it was co-written by Damien Giselle. And yeah. I remember my editor at the time, not to put them on blast, I'm not going to name them, um, had like sent it to him. And I, even though it was not a negative review, I was distraught for like three days because when I write a review, it is not, I am not like delivering feedback to the artist <laughs> this is not the report card that i am sending to damien giselle saying this is how well you did i am communicating only to the people who may or may not want to watch this movie and like i genuinely and sincerely do not want anything that i say to like actively impact what an artist is doing outside of like obvious things like you know when we criticize things that are harmful yes i would really like somebody to be listening but I think in, in general, if I'm just talking about art, like, please, I'm one person. <laughs> Don't listen to what I'm saying. Like, I would I would hate for an artist to change the way that they're making art just because I, like, fucking said something at some point. That would really upset me. I suppose my, my, my take from this is I hate that it's become a massive discussion and seeing all the people taking what she said personally, as if Viola Davis was specifically addressing you. Like, I think I saw someone quote tweet, it's like, wow, way to make me feel shit today uh, and my profession, Viola. <laughs> it's like, get a fucking grip. Like, honestly, get a grip. Because to be honest, that is literally, what, can I just introduce you to the film industry? Literally, as much as they love it when they get rave reviews, actors, filmmakers... They do not like critics, right? Some of them do, but Blanket in general, they don't like critics because it just, you know, it, they see it as like their investment in art. Yeah, they take it personally because personally that's their art. I'm like, you know, fair enough if you're going to do that. But I'm on the kind of business where once you put art out there, it's no longer yours. It's the world to interpret it the way they want to interpret it. And that's a critic's job is to reflect on that and discuss it with the people taking it in, not to people who are making it. Um, so I, I feel like uh, when I saw that, I was like, please just everyone get over it and get on with your work because it's not actually affecting you personally. Um, people are going to say stuff and it's not your job to take every hot take personally. Uh, you'd get nothing done <laughs> if you did. But personally, I think critics, you know, it is that. It's trying to like, you know, we articulate in writing or through dialogue or whatever, our impressions of a film, which we all go through after watching it. Like, I think the reason why most of us become critics is because we have such a um, a visceral response to cinema and stories that it's telling that we just want to dissect that and understand it more and look at the different ways that, like, story and, uh, you know, lighting or costume and all these elephants that come together and they make you feel something. I, I think... You know, that's, and, and when you can talk to people about it and say, hey, I want you, to, I think you should feel this too. <laughs> that's, I suppose, the best case scenario of being a critic in that the, the artist has done such a stellar job that you want to share it with the world as well. But then it's also like, how do we, how do we uh, dissect the things that maybe didn't work with us? What we would have liked to, you know, how we would have taken it in better, you know, how we want more performance and advise people. Because again, we can say that, our, you know, 
I suppose we shouldn't really care about tickets and seats, but there is a certain element as well where, you know, what people spend their money on, that's why we do our screen stream or skip verdict. So we can say, hey, do you need to spend 20 quid on this? Or could you, you know, watch this at home? Or what, you know, what warrants the theatrical experience, even though obviously the theatrical experience was set out because people didn't have TVs. So they would all watch it in one space. So like, this kind of like nostalgia for something that was actually just another cost saving <laughs> way of doing it. Um, so yeah, and I think, you know, my biggest thing nowadays is that you've just got to do your job and not be a shill, but also not to be part of the critical consensus. Like we all have different opinions. And I think the more diverse opinions and subjective opinions we have, you know, I think it's better for the world because we, we, we come to our, with our own background. So as much as we've got critical craft that we can learn, about we're also coming from our own lived experience and that can very much inform and you know if we're going to be representative i see representation on the screen we also need representative representation within the people who are telling it so i think that's the purpose that critics really serve really is to like try and communicate help people articulate what they like and didn't like about a film because they might not have the words to do so yeah i agree the 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 <laughs> Did the discourse around this whole Viola Davis thing remind you of the Malcolm and Marie discourse of it? <laughs> yes. Because that is one of the first... I think that's. I think I sent that message to the Fate of Black WhatsApp group. Because um, that is, is definitely the vibes that I was getting from what was being discussed. And I love Malcolm and Marie. And I think Me too. he made some very valid points Me about too. criticism, actually. And a lot, again, again, people taking it personal. Which is... I think that's what's weird to me is like the fragility of the the critic that every time there's like and I understand where that comes from because you know we've all we're all on the internet we get like harassed by people who you know think disagree with our reviews and it can get very unpleasant um but at the same time it's like of course an actor's gonna be upset if they read something mean about them because they're a human being like mm. i yeah. have had reviews were written about me when i used to do performance stuff i'm still haunted by the fact someone said and i had i had an anarchic voice and sometimes that still keeps me up at night it wasn't even a negative thing but i'm like what the fuck does that mean like it sticks with you when someone says something about you <laughs> that's like unexpected and not part of your usual perception of yourself like you're you're gonna have emotional reaction to it, and so yeah. I don't blame I don't blame any actor or director for being upset if they read a negative review. My only ask is that they don't then like harass the writer, which sometimes some people do, and I think that's fucked up. Like hey, you're it can even to be, be for set. a tweet. Like you put a tweet out yes. that you said something, and you get harassed for it, and it's like there is a difference between what Viola Davis said, where it's like. They serve no purpose for her. They serve, I mean, I'm sorry, she mm. needs to... Quali- it's annoying that people have to qualify these things as well. It wasn't like she mm. wrote it. She was doing an interview. And sometimes you don't say the exact perfect thing when you're doing a live interview. Yes. You have mm. to remember that. That's not someone... These aren't pre-prepared, long-form op-eds that she's written. She was just responded to something. And some of them have been really nasty. Like, so, And it's mm-hmm. like we forget that these people are in this, like... Art is vulnerable. Because you're... Especially an actor, like, not to... Sh- Still for actors, but that you're in a very vulnerable position that you've gone through. And someone like Viola Davis, where she's come from to, for her to get to where she is, there's been a lot of trauma. There's been a lot of self-doubt. Even though you look and think, this is this amazing actress, how could she possibly? Um, she's been through a lot. And it's like, I think she, you know, she has to handle these things anyway. And that's what she tells herself to be able to continue doing what she's doing or the imposter syndrome is going to set in. And also, like I don't know, I haven't seen this series yet. I've seen yeah. some of the clips. But also, uh, but I wonder, like, you know, Will Smith as King Richard, that was a pretty <laughs> over-the-top performance, no? And it got on an Oscar. So mm-hmm. I, I wonder how it looks within the whole context of it. And also maybe I need to start watching, looking at a bit a few more Michelle Obama interviews to see her facials, expressions, because maybe that is, we just we, maybe it just looks weird on Viola Davis because she's doing an impression or like a, uh, I suppose she's trying to do a version of that and because it's Viola Davis doing it and she doesn't look exactly like Michelle Obama it comes across a bit more as a caricature I don't know I can't judge till I see it fully when's it out? 
<laughs> no I would say one thing I do hate, as slightly off topic, is people sharing clips of things online and like judging the entire product or the entire piece of art off of that. Stop doing that. It's even sometimes it's for stuff I hated, but I'm like, no, I'm allowed to hate it because I saw the whole thing. You're not allowed to hate it off a two minute clip. <laughs> That's not right. I just seen the thing because they just released the the first clip from Doctor Strange, um, and I've seen exactly what Clarice has just been talking about because there's a extra who's running in the background, and unfortunately it's not been edited great, but. Now, given how we discuss films and especially like you know, with clips and, and with, with these clips coming out, and especially given the fact that now, you know, 45 days after a big cinematic release like The Batman, the thing is available on HBO Max for people to dissect. Um, that's just the way of the film discussion world right now, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, I can't remember even what the point I was trying to I was just following up on from what Carice was mm. saying. My 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 issue is actually my issue on um, uh, when people cl- like rip off clip clip things from films that have only just come out or haven't been out. Like you know when you see in the Spider Man No Way Home and people are clearly recording in cinemas, that oh, yeah. really upsets me. And when when I see critics sharing it and resharing it, that's what annoys me. It's like you should not be promoting these. See, I, I on that one. Are I you would... outing yourself? No, 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 I would never. <laughs> I would never, ever in a million years record uh, a film while I'm in the cinema. Never. With that being said... I I will quote tweet someone who has. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even do that, Billy. But with that being said, I do have a love-hate relationship with a thing like a Spider-Man No Way Home or an Avengers Endgame or an Avengers Infinity War because I do like re-watching those clips, the really, really exciting clips with the audience reactions and everything else in real time, because it does make me feel, if only for a split second, like I'm back in the cinema watching that moment for the first time. So I'll watch it a lot, but I would never, ever. I I want to double down on this. I would never, ever take out my phone and record in the cinema. I've shouted at people for doing that often. It's very annoying. I remember in 2016 when I was watching... Doctor Strange originally in Australia and someone was recording I was like stop we were recording the end scene I said stop and then I went to the person I was like went to the one of the stewards and was like this guy's recording it's like oh mm. I'm like oh and that's when I tweeted about it and Scott Derrickson followed me on Twitter so solidarity solidarity Scott <laughs> this is the thing that annoys me we hear so often when we attend screenings and premieres just to you know, peel, draw back the curtain a little bit They'll often have a person on stage beforehand, you know, turn up your phones. We can have people roaming the corridors, you know, you know, looking at you. If you're taking out your phones, you know, there's going to be consequences. Never have I been in a film screening where this has been done, where people have actually been, actually, sir, you got your phone out. Okay, you need to go. Never has it happened. It's really annoying. I have seen it. It was pretty funny. Oh, really? <laughs> but that was at a, that was a, yeah, at a premiere. I think it was House of Gucci. Someone got kicked out. I got told off at the end of the movie and like the film was over and it was like the lights had cut and I took my phone out. It's like, put your phone away. I was like, yeah. fucking movie's over. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, on so. that note. And that note, I think our final thoughts on our hot take is critics are vital and necessary <laughs> and continue listening to the podcast and editors continue paying us, please, I beg. <laughs> yes. Thank you for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is as safe as for you. Do subscribe, rate, and leave us a review if you love the podcast. Guys, it really does make a difference. And I feel like I'm doing... <laughs> you know when we say that, I always feel like it's like we're a charity appeal. It really does make a difference to one mind, small mind. It really does. <laughs> Just a five-star rating, that's all you need to do. See... Give us a rate, give us a subscribe, and That's they'll like live their life. They'll be able to survive one day. But leave us a review; they can podcast for the rest of the month. Did you get that reference? Nope. <laughs> Where's that from? Give a man a fish he can eat for a day. Teach a man how to fish; he'll fish eat for the rest of his life. Where's that? Where's that? Do you from? have that Oxfam advert? <laughs> No. Okay, just Bible? me, just me. Okay, isn't let's wrap this up. <laughs> is that not one of Jesus's teachings? I thought Jesus said that. Oh well, I saw an Oxfam advert, so maybe it was. <laughs> Mon, you're Christian. Do they teach that in the Bible? 
probably. I, yeah, I need this. <laughs> I, Sounds I, like I, someone oh needs God. to be reading up on the New Testament. Oh gosh. You've got a week. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we'll be pop quiz, Hotshot. <laughs> <laughs> that one, I do. What is that one? Logline, it's speed, but you have to podcast until yeah, the end no, of time. I would, I would have gotten that speed reference. That one, I do know. I've seen that film. Really good. <gasps> oh, dear. Right, you can do, <laughs> tweet us your favorite speed movies that aren't a speed movie, but basically are speed, but with a different subject. Tweet us at Fade to Black Pod if you have something you'd love us to shout out next week. And obviously what I just mentioned. Follow us at Hannah Flint or at Hannah and S Flint on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Clarice Lou on Twitter or at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. Can I plug something quickly? Yeah, if sure. If you, yeah. like me, love Peacemaker, uh, listen to the Radio 1 Screen Time podcast that came out recently. Maybe maybe you'll hear a familiar voice. Maybe you won't. Who knows? Ooh. Ooh. I haven't actually listened to it yet. Maybe I've just been entirely cut out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm at Amon Woman on Twitter and Instagram. Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Mm-hmm.